going to talk to you about what eternity is or give you a definition of it. For God's perfections are beyond the powers of human comprehension or human description. But eternity is worth evoking as best we can together because eternity is the word that the human heart has contrived in many, many languages to express a deeply longed-for reality that is very different from this reality, this space-time continuum, which ultimately fails us all in the anguish of our own death or the agonies of our loved ones. My main devices in evoking eternity, this other reality, will be by means of pictures, music, and stories. I will tell you the story of two persons whose lives were changed by their encounter with eternity. The names of these two persons are Vince and Don. I will begin with the bio of Vince. Vince lived and died just over a century ago. Born in 1853, he will not have a long life. He will die when he is just 37 years old in 1890. I will highlight now the three main themes of his brief life. First, failure. And second, suffering. And finally, eternity in his heart and how he expressed it. Failure, suffering, eternity. All of us face failure and suffering. And why? Eternity. Vince became an artist who wanted to paint the face of God, of God's glory, into his works. He lived to kindle the heart of modern people like you with a sense of eternity that haunted him and which he believed haunts us all and which we moderns have lost. Let's go into Vince's failures. First, he got a job as a clerk in a bookstore. He was fired from that job. Second, he became a salesman in an art dealership through a family connection. He was transferred to Paris and London, and it looked good, and then he was fired again for lack of motivation. Third, he decided to go to seminary. He entered seminary after failing to qualify for the university. Vince was strongly motivated by religion. He read Charles Spurgeon's sermons and dreamed of going to Dwight L. Moody's evangelistic services in England. His favorite books were Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But the teachers and administrators of the seminary flunked him out. The fourth thing he tried was to be a missionary. He went as a missionary to the Bochinage region of Belgium among poor coal miners. And there he lived at the same level of poverty as his congregants. He dressed as they dressed, ate as they ate. And he gave away everything that he had to those poorer than himself. 
He risked his life going into the mines to rescue trapped men. He was fearless and they loved him. However, the missionary board that sponsored him for a six-month trial sent in a representative to evaluate his suitability to be a missionary. The report was that he could pastor, but he could not preach. He had very little persuasiveness from the pulpit, and reluctantly, they terminated his support after six months. And as a consequence, Vince plunged into bitterness. He broke with the church. He broke with all organized religion, as many modern people do, perhaps as some of you here have done. He said very harsh things like, I am through with religion. Number five among this career of failure, romance and Vince's love life. He fell in love with his widowed cousin, Key, her name was, and he pursued her doggedly. She rejected him firmly. No, no, never. She told him this repeatedly. Never. But he, like a typical male, persisted. She'll come around, he told himself very self-centeredly. Her father, his uncle, who knew him well, would not put up with any connection with this nut of a nephew, and he ran Vince off. The best that Vince could manage in the romance field was to take up with a prostitute and her children. He wanted to help them out. But even this did not work out. Her mother wouldn't let her marry this penniless, jobless young man. Her daughter could do better on the street, she reasoned. Vince would never succeed at romance or family life. And number six of his failures was in his personal relations in general. To be perfectly frank, Vince was a jerk. Irritable, incessantly aggravated and complaining. He alienated lots and lots of people, perhaps even scared some with his weirdnesses. He would not compromise on any opinion that he held, even in small things. His brother Theo, who loved him unconditionally, said that living with his brother was the hardest thing he had ever done. So by the time Vince reaches 27 years old, he is already a certified failure. His parents, his employers, his teachers, friends of the family, everyone agreed that he was a failure and had no future. And remember, he only has 10 more years left to live. 27 years old and a proven inept in most of the endeavors to which he had devoted his life. Except, except, his younger brother Theo believed in him when no one else seemed to. Vince, for some time, perhaps to forget his mess-ups, had been doing charcoal sketches of the type you are seeing flow by on the screen. Theo believed that he saw traces of genius in the drawings that his brother was doing, and he believed in him. Paint, Vince, paint. Theo not only encouraged 
he accumulated enough money to send his misfit brother, who couldn't raise any money, to Paris so that he could study and learn his craft from the masters. So off to Paris, the failure went. There, this young man devoted himself entirely and without failure to learning how to paint. In his time in Paris, he ran into some remarkably good fortune. He was able to meet men who would become the biggest names in art of his time. Paul Gauguin, Millet, Degas, Pissarro, the Impressionists. And some of them, many of them, were intrigued by this odd young man. And he was influenced by them up to a point. But his goal remained in some ways what it had always truly been, what it had been when he went to seminary and when he became a missionary. His goal was to paint the infinite, eternity, into his canvases in such a way that modern people who would not go to church could see the unseeable, could see the invisible in mundane things, a chair, a flower, a cypress tree, a star, and a pair of boots in the moon and the sun and the sky. Now, let me turn from this Paris success, which, by the way, will turn into a kind of failure, and take up the second theme I want to highlight in Vince's life, suffering, suffering. Vince endured terrible physical pain and mental anguish and psychic disruptions for the rest of his brief life. There are many theories in 20th century medical annals of what it was that was attacking him. Epilepsy, autoimmune disease, schizophrenia. He even became dangerous. He attacked his friend Paul Gauguin with a knife. What is certain about his health is that he was chronically on the edge of collapse and institutionalization in the last 10 years of his life. But despite his pain, despite his confusion, he was true to his craft. He painted a lot, 900 canvases, at least 1,100 charcoals and other drawings. But selling his work was another matter. And here we take up again the failure theme. How many paintings did he sell? One. One. In his whole life. One. He stored his unmarketable canvases and his drawings at his parents' house. So many that his mother had no more room in her closets and pantries. And after his death, she threw many of Vince's works into the trash to be hauled off. Failure and suffering, two major themes in Vincent's life. Let us now turn to the third theme that marked Vince's life and his work, a theme of eternity, or infinity, as he often called it. Modern man, he knew from his own personal experience, has had his sense of eternity deadened Vince believed moderns had been blinded, had been deafened to it. He came to have no intention, he seemed to have no intention of ever trying to explain why the spiritual deafness and blindness had taken place. 
and neither will I spend time on this complex and probably futile matter. Vince's goal, Vince's goal was more in tune with his life, a missionary or an evangelistic one. How to use his painting to kindle the heart of moderns, to console moderns with a sense of eternity, the alternate reality without pain, without sickness and death, without loss and failure, without an end of life. Eternity strengthened him and gave him a sense of living purpose despite his failures, despite his deteriorating health, despite the lack of love in his life. But he will emphasize by his work his credo that he never varied much, that the glory of God must be declared in everyday things. The glory of God must be declared in everyday things. He will both succeed and fail in his attempt to evangelize moderns, to awaken them to a sense of eternity, a sense of the different reality in which God and his perfections dwells and calls us to dwell with him. Vince knew that the redactors of the biblical books had faced the same problem he faced as a sacred artist of how to declare the glory of God in everyday things. In the New Testament, the essence of God is discovered in bread and wine or the healing of the broken bodies. And chiefly, he knew that Jesus in his parables had rarely, if ever, actually referred to God. A woman loses some coins and searches till she finds them. No mention of God. A shepherd goes out to find a strayed sheep. No direct mention of God. A prodigal son leaves and returns chastened to his father. No reference to the Lord. Jesus uses a literary form empty of God that he shows is actually full of God. Could Vince do the same with color, shape, and design, charging the mundane that he was depicting with spiritual radiance? Could he do shoes, chairs, beds, roofs, farm implements, flowers, roads, sowers, harvesters, and crows and trees? in such a way as to light up the hearts of the people who saw his paintings in the midst of their anguish and loss and rise up from their defeats with the dream and with the hope of eternity. But let me give you a specific example in his own words. How about painting hair and eternity? Here is the 1888 portrait of Eugène Bach. Here are Vince's own words about this portrait in a letter he wrote to his brother Theo. I should like to paint the picture of an artist friend, a man who dreams great dreams. At first, I paint him as he is, as faith faithfully as I can to begin with. But the picture is not yet finished. To finish it, I'm going to be an arbitrary colorist I exaggerate the fairness of the hair. I even get to orange tones and pale citron yellow. And behind the head, instead of painting the ordinary wall of the mean room, I paint 
infinity, a plain background of the richest, intensest blue that I can contrive. And by this simple combination of the bright head against the rich blue background, I get a mysterious effect, like a star in the depths of an azure sky. So Vince begins with a realistic depiction of his friend, but does not stop there. He moves on to develop a kind of spiritual glamour shot of Eugène Bock. And he does similar enhancing in all of his paintings. His letters are filled with quotations like, What is this that speaks and shines in all that may be seen? It may be the one the sight of whose face cannot be born. He also had a principle that he observed until the, near the very end of his life. He painted no overtly religious scenes or still lives or landscapes. For instance, when Vince painted the olive grove, Paul Gauguin came and told him something like, that's Gethsemane. You've got, the sp you've got the space. Paint Jesus into it. And Vince refused. He stuck to his credo. The glory of God must be declared in everyday things. For a man who lived and died for eternity, which is invisible as far as our fleshly eyes go, this credo resulted in some strange practices. He virtually could not paint from his memory or imagination. He had to be seeing something, have it visible in front of his eyes before his brushes could work their magic. He loved to take a painting by Rembrandt or Millet or Delacroix or other artists that he admired and repaint what he saw with his own style and vision, winding up with something cunningly different from the original perhaps because of the difference in his own spirituality. For example, in the late 1880s, he decided to do a few semi-conventional religious su subjects. When he set out to paint the Good Samaritan, he took Delacroix's painting of the subject, and then he sort of copied it. And yet, as you can see, not a copy. And the face of the afflicted man is Vincent's own face. The painting thus is not a mere copy. It is a reprise, a reprise, a new performance of a previous painting. And some of the best-known paintings that he came to do are such reprises, all near the end of his life. Now, the word reprise means in music a repetition or a second performance of a song or musical passage. For instance, a song in the first act of a musical comedy may be repeated in a slightly different context and therefore with an amplified meaning in the second act. That's a reprise. Vince did several reprises that expressed the unbearable suffering in his own life as he thought himself drawing nearer and nearer to eternity in an early death. Look at Eugène Delacroix's Pietà. A Pietà is a painting or sculpture 
in which Jesus' mother is shown with her dead son's body in her arms. Now look at Vince's reprise or copy. But it is a very different pieta indeed. And Christ's face is once again Vincent's suffering face. His raising of Lazarus is after Rembrandt. And here he does a self-portrait of Lazarus. He was thus a curious kind of obsessive realist who seemed to need some model in front of his eyes in order to paint what was in his soul. And how did Vince's young life, how did the end of Vince's young life come about? In 1890, during a season of unbearable madness or who knows what, he went out and tried to shoot himself in his heart. His aim failed. He was badly and painfully wounded, but he didn't shoot again. He gathered his coat around his wound and walked back to an inn where he was staying. He passed through a downstairs gathering place in which several people who loved him watched him pass on his way up the stairs to his room. They sensed that something was wrong, and the innkeeper went up to check on him. And he found him on his bed, bathed in blood. And two days later, he died in the arms of his beloved brother, Theo. And Vince's last words, even though he was Dutch, are reported to be in French. And they are la tristesse. Durera toujours. La tristesse durera toujours. They are perhaps a variation of Jesus' words, the poor you have with you always. But they mean in this case, sorrow you will have with you always. Theo, by the way, was to die six months later and be laid to rest beside his brother. I'm certain that by this time it is clear to all of you that the Vince that I've been talking about is the Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh. And it is time to temper this failure theme that I have stressed so much. As the 20th century wore on, he became for many people the most famous artist of the time. As an illustration, one of his paintings sold in 1990, a hundred years after his death, for $83 million, one painting. The same year, another went for $53 million. And his works are now among the most coveted and the most expensive in the art world. Vincent himself might well have not been much impressed by this. Wealth had a little allure for him. Remember, he had been eager to give himself entirely to his coal miners. And the coal miners were, unlikely, were unlikely to show up for his exhibitions or to make bids at auctions for his paintings. He wanted to reach the masses, I think, with the word of God, the word of eternity. And not many of the poor go to museums that exhibit his works. And he may have died with his failure to reach them as his biggest failure, the failure to reach the public of ordinary people 
like yourselves. But someone was about to do something for him that would bring him closer to the people, not only in his work, but in his life and his suffering, closer than he could ever have imagined, ever have managed on his own. Let's jump forward 80 years to a different continent, a different people, a different era, and a much briefer story about another young man's encounter with eternity without perhaps that young man's knowing he had encountered eternity and that she was sowing seeds with his life. Don, Don was a young American pop singer and songwriter, 25 years old, who also had had failures trying to establish, as Moses put it in Psalm 90, to establish the work of his hands. It was 1970, an oblique time in young Don's life. He was in a marriage that he recognized could no longer work. He had failed at that. He had also been trying to get record companies to undertake an album of his, of his songs that he had put together. 32 record labels turned him down. That's a lot of rejection. In time, he would climb, would be known for singing with big names like Billy Joel and Garth Brooks, Jim Croce and Pete Seeger. He would do tours and concerts. He would become such a stalwart on the music scene that he is still doing tours today when he is in his 60s. He did a tour of Europe last year and is doing a tour of North America this year. But at this early point in Don McLean's life, nothing but failure was before his eyes. He was so pressed for money that he had taken a job playing his guitar for high school classes in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. To make up for the low wages they were paying, school officials provided a room for him to live at, in, at the Sedgwick House, a town landmark, a mansion once owned by a local wealthy family. There was a library in that house of cultured people, and Don took a book he found out onto the veranda one evening to idle over it. It was a life of Vincent van Gogh and the Dutchman's life of pain and loss and beauty began to grip him. Don was highly intelligent. He turned down a scholarship to Columbia University so that he could devote himself to his career in popular music, the very career that was now stalled. He came across on one page a painting done by Van Gogh in an insane asylum in Saint-Rémy, France. It was Starry Night, which contrary to Van Gogh's almost invariable practice, he had painted from memory and imagination, not from a scene in front of his eyes, because he was in an institution for treatment, treatment which was not going to work. Don was bewitched by the painting. The beauty of the work blended in Don's songwriter's mind with the sadnesses and losses in his own and Van Gogh's life. Van Gogh had been right. Sadness, sorrow, we human beings will always have with us. And the song he penned that afternoon under the title of 
Vincent, or as it's popularly known, Sorry, Sorry Night, came to be regarded, at least in Europe, as the greatest he ever wrote. Americans would say American Pie, but the Europeans were different. Interviewers of Don McLean down through the years would try to get him to describe how the song Vincent had come about so quickly, how it flowed out of his pen. The way Don put it usually was, the painting wrote the song for me. The painting wrote the song for me. Listen again to the song Vincent or Starry, Starry Night. And this time, read the, read the words of the song, scrolling as it plays.
the painting wrote the song for me, Don McLean said. It was almost as if something supernatural had taken place. I think it did. For a case can be made that that is the way that eternity is a phenomenon in human history and individual experience operates in our space-time reality. Eternity bursts into time and fulfills the longings of hearts that are trying their best, however waywardly, to love God. Moses in Psalm 90, which is about time and eternity, prays at the end to the Lord, let your beauty fall upon us and establish thou the work of our hands. The work of our hands, Lord, establish thou it. You remember Moses, do you not, in his story? He was the one who was forbidden by God to enter the promised land he had worked so hard over 40 years to reach. He saw it only in the distance from the Pisgah of Mount Nebo. He died and was buried secretly by God himself in the land of Moab, his feet never touching the promised land's dust. And remember Moses over a thousand years later a thousand years later, appearing inside the promised land with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, his undusty feet transfigured by the glory of God's forgiving mercy in Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. What can you and I today carry away from this little story of two men and eternity? as well as from the exemplar of Moses and the promised land. I said, I believe that a case can be made that eternity operates this way, a different reality, cavalierly invading the limitations of time and space to fulfill some will of God, and that other perfections of God, whether mercy or grace or Justice or faithfulness or sovereignty or even wrath extend into our reality and modify it and people within it in a similar fashion. Embracing this hope can bring strength and consolation. It has to my life. Our charge is to spread that hope, that strength and Consolation. But don't forget the painting wrote the song for me. And the words, starry, starry night, portraits hung in empty halls, frameless heads on nameless walls, with eyes that watch the world and can't forget. Now, I think I know what you tried to say to me then how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They're not listening still, then. And perhaps they never will.
bow your heads for just a moment. Failure, suffering, eternity. And everyone here can identify with failure. Everyone here can identify with some form of suffering. It's possible not everybody here has a sense of eternity. Part of the good news of Jesus Christ is that eternity gives us a perspective of failure and suffering 